So last week, we looked at this idea of Christians' love for one another. That's what we were focusing on last week. We looked at the fact that Christians who are born again and who have been displayed God's love in the person of Jesus Christ ought to love one another. Because God is love, Christians who are born of God have to love. And because Christians have been demonstrated a great and magnanimous love in and through the gospel, the only fitting response is one of love. That's what we covered last week from verses one, sorry, from verses seven to twelve. But that part of the teaching is within a wider context. It spans verse seven to twenty-one. All of that, John is expanding and unfolding this idea that God is love, and He's provoking or motivating us to respond because of God's love. John is focusing on this idea to motivate us to respond in a particular way. And as I noted just now, the response of loving one another was what we touched on last week. And we ended with this idea that when we love one another, the invisible God is made visible through our acts. This week, we'll direct our attention to verses 13 to 18, which is on the same theme. But instead of further elaborating on how God's love stokes or motivates us, to love one another. John provides us with the antidote against fear, and more particularly, the antidote against fear of the judgment day, or the day of judgment. This type of teaching, of course, is very much in line with the entire theme of the book, which is to assure believers that they have eternal life. You don't have to wait until you're in the presence of God to figure out whether you have eternal life or not. There is this latent tenor that goes throughout the entire book of First John, where he's trying to show you by providing evidence after evidence of why the believers within this community are partakers of eternal life. He says, for instance, in chapter 3, that you may know now that we are the children of God. And that, and today, what we're looking at is no different. I want to highlight to you this evening just three realities from this text that John places before us. The first is the reality of the judgment day. The second is the response of fear and confidence to the judgment day. And lastly, we'll look at how we can have confidence on the judgment day. The way we've arranged the text means that we'll start from the bottom and go up. But I trust that as we transition, it will become clear why I've taken this approach. So let's first look at the reality of judgment. As you may have noticed, John doesn't have much to say about the day of judgment. In the verses before us, we just have in verse 17, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the judgment day. That's literally all he says. And the reason for that is probably because the persons that John is speaking to already have been exposed to what the judgment day is, whether it's through his own teaching or whether he was exposed to teaching from the other apostles or through the writings of the Old Testament. Whatever the case may be, he doesn't further elaborate because the persons that he's writing to understand what he means. So, 
for us, maybe we should just fill in a bit of the gaps. What John refers to when he says the day of judgment in the text is the court day that every man has with God. There's a day or time that God will gather every single person who ever existed. Every single man, woman, the angels as well, to stand before him to give an account of their deeds. This is the day of judgment. It's that event at which all the truths of men's dealing will become a matter of public record. God, the righteous judge, on that day will lay down an irrefutable and unchangeable verdict of guilty or not guilty on each and every man. This is what awaits every man after death. As the writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed for man wants to die, and after that comes the judgment. The day of judgment is inescapable. It's a day everyone must appear before the tribunal of God. There's no need for God to hire a bailiff. There's no need for a bulletin to go out saying, wanted, this person has skipped their court date. None of that will happen at all. You cannot escape the day of judgment. It is certain God has appointed it. By his immeasurable power, he will force everyone to stand before him on that day to give an account of their deeds. And the very import of this day should be evident to professing Christians and non-Christians alike. Because the day of judgment isn't like going to court for a minor traffic offense. In that case, the fine or the cost for you personally isn't that high. You know that you're going to go to court. You know that you're going to go through the pleasantries of addressing the judge. You personally may think that you aren't even guilty, but you're going to plead guilty. And then you're going to pay the fine, whatever he charges on you. There's no high personal cost. You part with your few coppers, and besides the long time that you have to spend in the court, there's no real cost to spending time at court for minor traffic offense. But the day of judgment is far different than that. On that day, you will either gain everything or you will lose everything. In a single moment, God will take everything that is precious and dear to you or give everything that is precious and dear to you. That is the day of judgment. The punishment for sins and the crimes of sins are obviously far more dear than a few coppers. The cost to be paid if you're found guilty is your very life, an ongoing torment of the body forever in the lake of fire. If you end up on the wrong side of the law at this court day, there are eternal and irreversible consequences. So I just want to highlight to you that there is such a thing as the day of judgment. There is such a thing as a court day at which God will lay down a judgment and he will judge all the peoples whether they have done good and are received into his kingdom or whether they have done wickedly and are cast out into the lake of fire. There is a day of judgment that is coming. And John provides us with at least two responses to the reality of judgment. The first is fear. Literally, being afraid or being 
horrified because of the anticipation of the judgment day. I take this to be the meaning John has in view because in verse 18, John claims that fear has to do with punishment. So persons are afraid because of impending punishment. So he isn't talking about reverence here when he says that persons are afraid. He's talking about dread, about being horrified, primarily concerning the judgment and the punishment that may ensue. Within the text presented to us, the opposite of fear is confidence. Look at the beginning of verse 17. It says, By this is love perfected with us. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So the so perfected love brings confidence, right? We'll get back to further elaborating on that idea later. But what I want us to see is that perfected love leads to confidence on the day of judgment, and that's the only point I want to bring out. On the other hand, fear is the very opposite of confidence. The latter part of verse 18 says, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So if you're not perfected in love, you will fear. And if you are perfected in love, you will have confidence. That's the only point I want to draw. The difference between having confidence and being in fear on the day of judgment is whether you are perfected in love. That's how John approaches this. What should be noted at this juncture is that the Apostle John assumes two things. The first, that it is possible to be fearful on the day of judgment. And the second is that there is a remedy for this fear of judgment. One of the beautiful things that we see when we read through the pages of Scripture is that it has an accurate assessment of our condition as sinful men. I would argue, of course, that it should bolster our confidence in the Bible as a whole. But more importantly to the point, the Spirit of God who inspired these writings knows well that our hearts are frail and prone to wander and forget. The Lord knows, they are saying, that you may from time to time be laden with uncertainty and even fright concerning the last day. And these words are written to reassure us that we don't need to approach the day of judgment with our fingers crossed, hoping for the best. We don't have to think that we're making a big leap into the dark on our deathbed. We don't have to do that. The purpose of this book is in large measure to give us confidence on the day of judgment. When we grow closer to our deathbeds, or the deathbeds of our friends draw nearer and nearer, we're meant to have a boldness and a courage as we approach death. The question to be answered then, and the big question that we will spend the majority of our time on tonight is, how then do I have confidence on the Day of Judgment? To recap, we got here by talking that about the fact that there's a Day of Judgment coming. It will involve punishment of those whose deeds do not pass muster, and it will also involve blessing for those who, are, who have done right in the sight of God. On account of this reality, John points out that there are two responses, fear and confidence. And now we will begin exploring how it is we can have confidence on the Day of Judgment. The first means that God has afforded us to gain confidence on the Day of Judgment is captured in verse 17. This is what we're circling back around to. In verse 17, we see that perfecting of love with us leads to confidence on the Day of Judgment. 
Let me read it here. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. In other words, those who are perfected in love are those who are confident on the day of judgment. So we spoke a little bit about being perfected in love last week at the ending of verse 12. But given it's so heavily used in this section, I thought we could pause here to examine what it means. When John says that love is perfected with us, what does he mean? In common parlance, when we think of something being perfected, we think of something that was flawed and now it's getting better and now it will become flawless. That's what we think of when we use perfected in common speech. So if, if I could use a cricket analogy, if a swing bowler, say Shannon Gabriel, if we were to say of him that he perfected his swing bowling, we would say that before his swing bowling was terrible. Before he had the wicketkeeper diving and jumping like if he was playing football. Before we would think that his swing bowling was terrible, or at least it wasn't on the mark. At, at the very least, we would think that. But if we were to then come to another match and see, okay, well, he's perfected his swing bowling, we would think that he's made it better. He's gotten to a point where it's good, where there can be no betterment, there can be no improvement. That's, what, that's how we commonly use the word perfected. But that common usage of the word isn't what is in view here. When John uses the word perfected within this context, he means that something is complete. It is accomplished. It reaches its expected end. So when we read the word perfected, we are not to therefore imply that the end result of the process is that the individual who's perfected in love is somehow flawless. That's not how we're supposed to think, or perfect. That's not what's in view. Just to give you an example of the word to cement this idea in our minds, in James 2.22, we see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed or perfected by his works. The context is Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac on the altar. James says that Abraham's faith was perfected or completed by his works. It's the same word that's used here, the same Greek word. Abraham's faith did not become perfect after he was willing to sacrifice his son. He didn't suddenly receive like a spiritual power up because he sacrificed his son. God didn't fill him up in some spiritual measure so that his faith was not deficient in any way after that point. Not at all. The, the writer is pointing out that faith was active. It was expressed by works or it came to its expected end through the demonstration of works. Faith then that remains internal or subjective, meaning it re rely resides in the subject and does not work itself out in deeds, is an incomplete faith. Or as James would say, it's no faith at all. That's the same sense that is in view in chapter 4. So when we read, when we read rather last week in verse 12 that if we love one another, God's love is perfected in us, we don't mean that our expression of love for one another is now without flaw. Until we're glorified, that's, that's not going to happen. 
our lives as we love one another are going to be punctuated by sin. There's going to be mixed motivations. There's going to be an incorrect measure in how we act towards our brothers and sisters. We are not going to be flawless in how we love one another in the here and now. John means that God's love has reached its intended goal when there's a practical demonstration of love by Christians for other Christians. His love, meaning God's love, is complete then. And that's the same meaning John adopts here to bolster our confidence before God in verse 17. Perfecting of love in this life, in the life of a Christian, means you don't just feel bad when a brother is hungry. You don't just feel bad when someone is sick. You don't just feel bad when someone goes through a difficult trial. There is an action that follows. You don't just feel bad or you don't just talk about when another Christian is floundering in the faith. We would meaningfully engage them if we are saying that our love has been perfected in that scenario. We don't just see the marvelous work of God on our behalf on the cross and be mesmerized by it. We demonstrate it. That's what perfecting love involves and entails. What I'm trying to get at is that the perfecting of love that John speaks about that allows us to be confident of, on the day of judgment objectively looks like something. Others can see it. You can see it. It, it has been expressed and does not remain internal. It is accompanied by action. That is how the Lord Jesus demonstrated love for his own. At the end of verse 17, we read that we can have confidence because as he is, so also are we in the world. Simply put, when you love other Christians in deed and in truth, as John calls for in chapter 3 of this book, you bear resemblance to Jesus who loves his fellow brothers. The assumption is that God will never condemn Jesus or punish Jesus, and therefore those who are like him should be similarly confident that God the Father will receive them as he has received Christ. Now, of course, if we, was, if we were to put ourselves right next to our elder brother and king, Christ Jesus, we would start to see very easily how deficient our own love is. We would see that it is incomparable when we stand alongside him. But I think John Piper gives a helpful illustration that bears out the point. He admits that we must affirm that we are sinners unlike Jesus. But then he says, there's a difference between two rivers, one running, say, north, and the other running, say, east to west, and one running north to south, and the other going in the same general direction. But it's kind of muddy and rocky. Sorry, let me repeat that. There's a difference between two rivers, one running, say, north to south, and the other one running east to west. Basically, one running contrary to where the other one is running. And one running north to south, and the other going in the same direction, but it's kind of muddy and rocky. If your life is running in the same direction, it's besides the point that your river is filled with mud and rocks. When you stand there as two streams or two children before your father, you will have confidence because as he is, so you are in the world. The illustration to me bears the point that we ought to be striving for perfection, certainly, 
but not assessing whether we have confidence before the throne of God based on whether our acts of love are perfect or not. That's not the metric that should be used. How then do we gain confidence? We gain confidence by putting God's love into action by loving other Christians. The love of God that comes to us through the gospel must be worked out or brought to completion in our lives. Not that these acts are flawless, but they are expressed in a manner that bears similarity to Jesus. It's important to have in mind the role of this perfected love that John speaks about, though. Our love for other Christians serves as corroborating evidence on the day of judgment that we are indeed born again and have a vital faith or a living faith. But they do not serve the function of meeting God's legal demands. As I said before, our works of love are punctuated by sin and therefore they cannot pass muster of God's holy standard. What you need to live or have eternal life is total and complete obedience to the demands of God's law. You don't have that. I don't have that. The only hope we have of meeting God's righteous standards are to place our faith wholly in Christ. On Judgment Day, we will be received by God into heaven, not because our lives were sinless, but because of the righteousness and atoning work of Jesus. The love we show to others merely demonstrates that indeed we are recipients or participators in this love that God has shown to us. We are indeed united to him. As the text says, we abide in his love because we have received it and we show it to others. It can be seen and it has been shown. The power of God to sanctify us is at work in such a way that we now have an attitude like Jesus. We care for those who he calls his own. Their suffering is our suffering. The misery that we had in this world, Jesus decided to come and do something about it. And so, similarly, when there are saints around us who are miserable, we come and come alongside them and do something about that misery. When the love of God reaches us and we display a character such as this, God's love is perfected. And that's how we gain confidence on the Day of Judgment. So that's one reason about how we gain confidence on the Day of Judgment. The second reason we are given for confidence on the Day of Judgment is because of the work of the Spirit of God. And this is where we're going back to the top of the text. In verse 13, we have this curious statement. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We see that we can be assured we abide in God and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. In the writings of John, both in the Gospel and here within this epistle, there are several instances where the operation of the Spirit is mentioned. In this case, the Spirit provides us with assurance that we are indeed abiding in God. The question, though, that is left for us is exactly how does this happen? How does the Spirit provide us with assurance that we abide in God? Colin Cruz, who is purportedly like one of the best commentators on the Epistle of John, if sites like Ligonier, etc., are telling the truth, um, tells us that there are at least three ways that we can read this text. The first is that John is implying that the Spirit motivates love for fellow believers, and that 
objective practice of love is grounds for our assurance. So this view basically focuses on the work of the Spirit to prompt and empower us to love others. That's the first view. The second view is that the Spirit teaches the truth about God sending Jesus as the Savior of the world, and knowing this provides believers with assurance. And that view emphasizes that the work of the Spirit is to testify that Jesus has indeed come to show his love for you, to show his love for me. And the last view is that the very presence of the Spirit himself in believers creates a sense of assurance. This view is more along the lines of Romans 8, where the Spirit is inwardly communicating and testifying to us that we are sons and daughters of God. As you may have noticed, all the things I said are true, which is the, the difficulty. If you affirm any one of those three views that the passage teaches, then you are being consistent with the broad contours of Scripture. And the context doesn't require that we must rule out any one of these views either. So the challenge really is trying to determine which one best fits the context. So I will have to go out on a limb and say that the second view is more contextually consistent with John's overall teaching concerning the Spirit. So just to remind you what the second view is, the Spirit teaches us the truth about God sending His Son. The Spirit provides a testimony that God has sent His Son to perform for us a work of redemption. That is the second view, and he confirms to us that God has done this for us, for you, and for me. The reason I say that the second view is probably the best view is because John references other activities of the Spirit within this epistle that are along the same lines. So, my, I guess what you would say is my hermeneutic for interpreting this passage is John says clear teachings about what the Spirit does within this very book. And I'm saying, well, this particular passage is kind of obscure. Let me look at what he says in other parts to come to some ideas to what he's saying in this particular one. So let's take a sampling of this and go back in time. In chapter 2, between verses 20 and 28, we read of the anointing that has been given to us. John says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The Antichrist. Sorry. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And here's, again, what supports this view. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Uniformly, most people think that the anointing John refers to there 
is the, the work, the ministry of the Spirit to teach us as believers the truths of God, and particularly those relating to Christ. Also, we have in chapter 4 and verse 6, to me, the clearest statement about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We covered this, not last week, a couple weeks ago. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 6. I'm wondering if I have the wrong verse. I think I have the wrong verse. I think that the verse that I am actually referring to is verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John is saying, how do you know the activity, the ministry of the Spirit? You know it when you hear right teaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying. And then lastly, in chapter 5, which we haven't arrived at yet, we also have an explicit statement about the Spirit. It says of the Spirit, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. So again, we see clearer passages that speak to the Spirit's role being focused on the testimony or confirmation of the truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do to work redemption on behalf of sinners. The only other ambiguous passage concerning the Spirit is found in chapter 3 and verse 24. However, because John immediately proceeds to unfold the idea of how to determine whether we are speaking under the influence of the Spirit of truth or the Spirit of error right after that section, again, I think that the role of the Spirit in confirming who Jesus is and his work is in view there in chapter 3 and verse 24. I highlight those passages to you just to provide some evidence from the clear teachings of 1 John that indicate to us that the work of the Spirit is to testify about Jesus. So when we read in verse 13 of chapter 4, that by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit, we're talking about the ministry of the Spirit to confirm our standing, to confirm that we are united to Christ because of the work that Jesus has done for us. That's what John is trying to get across. This makes sense within the larger context of the book, and as you know, John has prompted believers in the community to know that the Spirit is at work in their lives because they are holding fast to the apostolic teaching concerning Jesus. So I, I conclude by just simply saying this, the role of the Spirit is to bring glory, honor, Lord, and praise to the Son. But it is through the testimony of his work to redeem sinners. That's what's primarily in view in the book of First John. Based on all the instances I highlighted for you just now, that seems to be the most obvious way to in interpret the text. But as I said before, if someone interprets it differently, they're not going outside of the contours of even the book of First John. I just think that that's the best way to interpret it. So how then does this relate to having confidence? Well, the Spirit of God grounds our hope in the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
and the love that God demonstrates for us in and through the gospel. What will drive away your fear on the day of judgment? It is when we come to know and believe the love that God has for us. As John writes in verse 16, notice the use of the word know and believe here. There's an element of both trusting and being certain about the thing trusted in. We know for certain. Just as I know for certain if I throw a ball up, it's coming right back down because of gravity. I know for certain and I trust him to do this work for me. We hear through the apostolic teaching passed down from generation to generation that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That he has come to live a righteous life. He's come to live a righteous life not for his own sake, but for ours. Everything that Christ did was done vicariously for his people. Have you thought about the fact that Jesus lived righteously for you? For your sake, he suffered the scorn of sinners and the hardships of this life, and yet without sin. But consider also, every single day of Jesus' life, he lived so that righteousness may be credited to you. From the age of being a child to the date of his death, every day of Jesus' life, he was being righteous, and that righteousness he provides for those who trust in him. God does not take from us filthy rags. God is not in the business of taking the righteousness that men think that they have in themselves. The currency that we can afford to give to God, God does not do business in. In the divine economy, the only thing that you can give are filthy rags, and the only thing you can receive for them is punishment. Christ comes to live a righteous life in our place, the life that we ought to have lived. He lived the life we could never live and died for the sins, as for our sins as well, bearing the punishment that we should receive on Judgment Day. And in doing so, he satisfies the demands of the law, both its precepts, what the law requires of men, and also the penalty for breaking the precepts. Christ satisfies them both. He takes upon himself the punishment and he has lived the, a righteous life, fulfilling the precepts of the law. And this is what the, the Spirit confirms to each and every one of us. He confirms that we are recipients of that great work. That is the role of the Spirit. I think it's helpful to mention that this confidence or assurance in both cases, whether it is through the love of the brethren or through firm belief in the work of the Spirit, is not so inherent to Christianity or to faith that every believer must be confident. Like, no. That's, that would be against the teaching of First John. Passages like these, by necessary implications, suggest to us that it's possible to be a Christian and still have doubts. That is the reason it is written here for instruction and learning. If John simply assumed that every Christian must be confident on the Day of Judgment, like there would be no reason to write it in the book of 1 John. But it is possible for Christians to not be confident about the Day of Judgment, and hence we have this teaching. 
But where doubt does fill our hearts, God provides the antidote. Look firstly not to your own love for God, but to the love revealed in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't listen to the words of the enemy or your own frail heart. Brothers and sisters, persons within this church have received you into our fellowship. We have believed that you emulate in some measure the things that are written here in this book. There is in some way, to some degree, that God's love has been perfected in you. So that the point I'm making is that you have a church family who loves you and can respectfully and, and winsomely correct you if you're off the mark. And they too have the Spirit of God to help you by even giving their own affirmation that you love the brethren and do indeed hold fast to Christ. What I'm saying is that you have external people, persons outside of yourself, who can look on on your life and tell you, bro or sis, like why why are you doubting? Look at how the Lord has worked in your life in this way. Look at how you trust him in this circumstance. Look at how you preach and teach the gospel. Look at how your speech is seasoned with the love of Christ. And in those ways, we can gain confidence. And confidence not in ourselves, but confidence that God has perfected his love in us. What persons do when they point out that you are within the contours of Christianity is merely externally corroborating or verifying what the scripture says of Christians. That's, that's all they're doing. But if we're honest, sometimes we can be anxious about the day of judgment. I have anxiety about the day of judgment, primarily because there's so many deeds left undone. I think back to this time where a close friend of mine, he, he was diagnosed with cancer, I think it was, and eventually died maybe a week later or so. The doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. And I had the opportunity to share like a full gospel message with him, sit down by his bed, etc., and do that. But that was a deed that I had left undone. And I feel like if on the day of judgment, I'm going to be quite nervous because I think about that in the back of my head. There are many deeds left undone, and some of them, quite frankly, like his, can't be undone. Like he's not coming back. He, he's died, and now he must face the judgment. There's a certain time that he must face the judgment. Nothing can be undone. Perhaps you, like me, have had that situation happen for you, and you fear the account that you may have to give for your sin of omission, your sin of commission. But friends, what I have to learn all the more, and what I have to say to you is to look to the cross. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor, famously said this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Take a look at Christ and be confident that it's not your righteousness that will bring you through to heaven on the day of judgment, but that of Christ. The Father will never reject him, and so he will receive you. I want that we can all approach God our Father on Judgment Day, looking to one another and saying, Go, oh, you're next. Go and hear the love that Christ has had for you. Go and hear 
how your failings were swallowed up by his love, by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Go and hear how he was wounded and died for you in spite of your sins. This is the ministry of the Spirit. This is what the apostles taught, and this is the doctrine that we have to hold fast to, and that will bring us confidence on the day of judgment. We ought to be able to go smiling to the countenance of our smiling fathers. He tells us how he has made us new through regeneration and has brought to completion his love. Friends, as long as we hold fast to the testimony of the Spirit, which leads, which which has been passed down from the apostles, and we have the evidence of the corroborating evidence that we are being perfected in love for the saints, we can have confidence and cast away fear. I say so to myself and to you as well. I just want to be crystal clear though that this confidence or assurance on the day of judgment is reserved for believers only. It's not that it's an exclusive club that you can't have access to, that's reserved for a select few, but there's no one who will gain access to fellowship with the Father without going through Jesus. And so I ask you, unbeliever, what will happen on the day of judgment for you? Won't you this very hour remove all cause for trembling before God by looking to the Son? I urge you, even as you sit at your seat, not to think with indifference about this poor day, the day when all your deeds will be exposed to what they are. Will Jesus, the righteous judge, look at your, your deeds and welcome you because they're covered by his blood? Or will he tell you those most fearful words? Depart from me, I never knew you. Confidence can be had today before the throne of God. John provides us with the testimony of the Spirit that we should cleave to and plead on the day of judgment. John also provides us with corroborating evidence that shows that we have indeed been recipients of this work of love that God has done through Christ. And we only ought to hold fast to these things to have confidence on the day of judgment.